Okay, so this is the 14th take of this intro. I just can't seem to get my tongue around the words, and it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for anyone who hosts a podcast to not have any kind of sense of... What's that word I'm looking for? Oh, yes, English. But this episode's a good one. I interviewed The Guardian's Owl Hunt, who I met for the first time in 2009 in the offices of Salient, which is Victoria University's student magazine. And my God, 2009 and Salient, what a fun year that was. Uh, we pissed off, I think, I'm about 90% of the country with a stunt we ran called the Lundy 500. Yeah, not our finest hour, but we prided ourselves on being an incubator of quality journalism which is a mystery to me because I was on a paid salary to work there. I don't know, they shouldn't be paying me, but they should have been paying this person. Elle Hunt now works at The Guardian. She was previously a journalist with The Wireless at uh, RNZ and The Dominion Post, among others. So I begin by asking her, why on earth did you move to London? which is the question I ask everyone. But you know what? After doing this for 15 takes, 14 takes, whatever the hell it is, I'm not prepared to edit this down. So why did you move to London? Well, I might not be the most representative of the people that you've interviewed in the past because, as you may be able to tell from my sort of mongrel accent, I was born in England, lived here until I was nine, and then moved to New Zealand with my family. I'd never lived in London before as a child. I'd only visited once, but I knew that I wanted to spend some time working here and maybe live here permanently. So it was always when I was going through university and and started working in Wellington, I always knew that the UK was probably the next step or at least a goal. And so what are you doing now? Um, Well, six months ago, I moved to London to work at The Guardian, where I um, had been working but in Sydney for um, two and a half years before that. So sort of a long round trip, really, over many years. You are the first person I've interviewed who I've known in a previous, previous life. So yeah. all the way back in 2009, yep. we both wrote for Victoria University's magazine, Salient. Yeah. And I actually remember the very first time I met you because I had been reading <laughs> you throughout the year. And at the time, I was the... News editor? I think that's... that's yeah, you were the news, oh, news editor. News and this editor. was under Jackson Wood, right? Jackson Wood's mm. uh, stewardship. I've always found student media kind of weird for a couple of reasons. It's because you find people who are intense about what they write about and what they do, and then you've got other people who just kind of want to write a column. And the most intense column was always the music column. Because <laughs> I consider myself like a, a, a music fan. I like music. But whenever I read these columns, I was like, you know what? I am not on these guys' level. Well, there was a lot of posturing, right? Like at university, it was all about who knows the most about music. And, you know, yeah, Yeah. I remember. (laughs) But then uh, this was for the first couple of years I was at at Vic. And then you came along. And I remember reading your columns and being like, this is not only well written, but I feel like I'm engaging with this a hell of a lot more. So I kept asking Jackson, who's Al Hunt? Who's Al Hunt? And he just kept telling me, yeah, actually... What's the music on? I don't think I'd even met Jackson, really. Like, um, I worked exclusively through the music editor. So I, I don't think I really ever came into the office. I was just, like, a scared first year. <laughs> that was the, the last issue. Yeah. And everyone who was involved with Salient was invited to come in, and you came in. And I remember asking you if you were going to write features the year after. 
and you said you were thinking about it, and I remember telling you to do it. I remember you telling me as well, and I, I that was a big boost of confidence, so thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, like, those music reviews are awful to go back at them. Like, it was interesting, like, I could write, but I didn't have good music judgment. Like, I um, made a lot of bad and very strident calls about albums I now really like. So I'm sort of embarrassed that they're still on the internet, but they are hard to find. <laughs> If you search your name now, I imagine they're down on page yeah. seven, eight, nine. Two. Everything I've done now has just been to bury those music reviews and the bad takes I had in 2009. <laughs> well, then from 2009, 2010, you, you wrote features for Salient, which yeah. tended to have a degree of success because you won a Canon Media Award, is that right? Yeah, won a Canon Media Award for some best junior magazine feature writer or something, a category that was then disestablished the following year. So, I, like, I mean, it's, it's nice, but I don't put an enormous amount of stead by it. <laughs> I guess they either thought that it could never be bested or exactly. they figured it wasn't really a proper award. So, you know, fine, it's nice to have. Yeah, and the best thing about Salient was just how kind of um, completely free reign we had to do whatever we want, as you'll remember. But I was also very lucky because after Jackson, the editor who I worked the most with was Sarah Robson, who is now at Radio New Zealand. Um, and she was very unusual among many student media editors in that she took it very seriously and very professionally. And so that was a very good crash course in terms of like interview protocol and sources and like um, just kind of clean writing. I think that was very helpful as well. Anyone who's ever met Sarah knows that mm -hmm. she is uh, yeah, someone who not only takes things seriously but you know, demands to be taken seriously. And right from, right from the get-go, uh, I knew when I first met Sarah, like you're this, someone who knows what they're talking about, do not, do not cross her. Yeah, and I mean, that was like a very unusual for student media generally, like I think in salient throughout the history, but then also across other student media in New Zealand as well. Like, so I think I was lucky to start under her because I took it seriously because she set that tone. And then you went on to edit. <laughs> and took it a lot less seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with Ethan Dean, um, my yeah, who's playwright now in Auckland, I think. Yeah. What do you think about when you think about your time as you know, an editor or your involvement in student media as a whole? Do you look back on that time fondly, or is it a case of they you needed to have that formative experience before stepping into quote unquote real uh, journalism? Um, well, it was definitely the most valuable thing I did at university with regards to transitioning into real journalism quote-unquote like there was nothing about my degree which was a generic Bachelor of Arts degree in media studies and English that really would have helped me in a newsroom but like I say the sort of quasi-professional introduction to feature writing and news that particularly I got from Sarah was very valuable when I was co-editor with Yusa the contacts I made through being you know student media editor allowed me to start freelancing for Fairfax and so I started and put and the canon as well I suppose is that I just started writing articles for like the Don Post and Sunday Star Times in my spare time and then that did directly lead me to getting a job just after I graduated. I look back at student media very fondly for that reason but also pretty much all of the best friends I made at uni were through Salient and so my very good friends went on to be editors after me and I met them and you know because they were volunteers as well so without that I would have had a very different university experience generally I think so it was valuable in lots of ways. You mentioned going and freelancing for the Dominion Post you ended mm. up 
working for them full time. And then on to the wireless. The wireless was a, an interesting beast when it first started. I think you, you had an important part in shaping the tone and the, and the direction of that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was essentially there had been this sort of funding set aside by Radio New Zealand over a long period of time to set up a youth radio station in the vein of like Australia's Triple J. And by the time it kind of came to spending it, it was then Chief Executive Peter Kavanagh's baby. And it was just kind of felt that people our age were not really listening to broadcast radio. So it was about how can you serve that younger audience in a different way. And essentially we came up with a sort of a brand using the resources with the same values of Radio New Zealand, but a different identity because Radio New Zealand, for better or worse, has a particular reputation and image within New Zealand um, that's hard to shake. So we thought about how can we kind of bring that into what would have then been 2012, 2013? I don't know. And so we spent a team of four were brought on at the same time hired to devise it essentially and that was from scope name brand look identity writers down like it was a completely you know clean slate um, which is an amazing thing to do like you don't often get that opportunity to start up something new so we spent about six months devising that and then we launched and then it became an entirely different job of how do you maintain it and then it was my role took on a sort of contributing editor role where I was working with other writers and video producers and then doing my own stuff as well, as well as collaborating with the rest of Radio New Zealand. So from there, you made them move to Australia. The Guardian, how did that come about? I, well, I have always been a big believer in applying for jobs that you're not quite qualified for because I think if you can at least sort of get your name on their radar, then there might be something else you're qualified for or they'll think of you next time something comes up. And I had always, like just about every journalist in New Zealand and everywhere else, um, admired The Guardian and wanted to work there. So occasionally I was just doing my irregular browse of the um, career listings and found that they had firstly a Sydney office, which I hadn't been aware of before, um, and that they had a role there that I thought if I, you know, I could either do or learn to do. I also really like writing cover letters in a very nerdy, boring way. So I figured, well, even if I don't come anywhere close to getting this, it will at least be a fun cover letter challenge on a Sunday night. <laughs> so I chucked an application in without much hope of even hearing back. And then they called me like three days later, asked me to come over for a trial. So I spent a week in the office there. And then on the last day, they were like, oh, do you want to move? And so I moved. And that was, yeah, at that point, it was um, deputy audience editor, which was sort of being the, the data and analytics point person for the editorial department. So reporting on, I suppose, how readers reached and engaged with our journalism to other journalists. Did you enjoy that or did you see that as a, <laughs> an entry point into doing what you're doing now? I did enjoy it and particularly as my role at the wireless had been so broad, there was a bit of everything. I was like, okay, maybe it will, I'll enjoy focusing on social because that had been a strand of my role there. It's like, maybe I'll focus on that. 
Um, it was the first time, I guess even well since Salient, that I hadn't had a primarily writing role. I didn't really realise how much I'd missed that. So as soon as I got there, I started volunteering to write things, and then eventually, within about six months, they moved me to a reporter role. <laughs> um, yeah, it turned out that that was a hard thing to shake. And your, the scope of things you wrote about during your time in Australia, it was, was fairly, say, eclectic. Mm. Do you have any particular stories you were fond of? Well, the thing that first sort of got me on the editor's radar there was just because I was so in tune with weird New Zealand news and they couldn't believe the stories that were coming out of there. So I would just be saying, oh, well, everyone on my Facebook is talking about the flag referendum or the time uh, those Takahe was shot instead of Pukeko. We did think that was very funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was the kind of thing where the, it was the sort of stories that the Australian journalists in the building weren't picking up and um, our colleagues over in London weren't aware of. And I was the best place to write. A weird one was the... Um, do you remember the uh, New Zealand X Factor judges, the mean ones? Yes. Willie Moon and Natalia Kills. Yes. That was like the biggest story on The Guardian like that day. Something like yeah. that, globally. Yeah. But things like that were... I think um, I had an eye for a New Zealand story that would travel. Um, and certainly the flag referendum was very rich source of reporting. <laughs> I cornered that, that beat for a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, then I sort of moved on. I broke out of the New Zealand area <laughs> just because, um, partly also because we um, hired a very good stringer there, um, Eleanor Ainge Roy, who's in Dunedin and who weirdly had sort of like given me like a mentoring coffee when I'd first been brought on for Fairfax and so yeah it's like it all ties up you know they, they again that was the other thing all my colleagues were always like incredulous about how everyone knew each other they're like do you know this and I'm like, yeah yeah you know you know friends in common it was mad they, they thought that I was making it up and they're like do you know fly the concourse I'm like yeah Brett McKenzie's my um friend's landlord and Jermaine was at my 21st yeah he's a nice guy and they're like you're taking the piss um, but yeah, other, once I broke out of the New Zealand area, I was like a general reporter and did kind of everything, really, like um, whatever needed doing, which meant I did a bit of like Sydney Siege Inquest. I did MH370 for like a year. I often would help out with the foreign desk, which would mean stories in the UK that would break overnight. I would be strangely covering. So when people woke up, it was me in Sydney doing um, the Manchester bombing or Grenfell more recently whatever needed doing I really liked the pace and the variety of it can I go back and ask about Jermaine at your 21st how did that come about um I had twisted the arms of mighty mighty of Sally there to let me have a 21st there and she had had I think a blanket no 21st rule and I was like no don't worry I'm not like other 21st year olds I'm like sedate and quiet and it all was fine but it did become an open bar at I think nine or ten and then he was just in there and then emboldened by all the liquor that I was like it's my birthday blah 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 and he gave me some good advice for my year ahead and then the next year I ran into him at something else and I was like now it's another year can I have some more advice and the I don't remember what he gave me on the 21st one because I was probably too drunk but on the 22nd year he told me oh you might think you're really nailing it now and you're not but it's good it's good you can get better and I was like okay thanks Jermaine <laughs> and then I never asked again <laughs> there's a picture somewhere of me looking very like sort of crestfallen standing next to him <laughs> I think this was was it the what we do in the shadows press yeah oh, the premiere I think was yeah. Laura McQuillan yeah 
He's like where he's wearing a top hat and looks like the Babadook, and I'm just like really sad because <laughs> I've been negged by Jermaine. <laughs> but I guess it's something we all go through as New Zealanders. I think <laughs> rite of passage. I, I have friends who live in the states, and they are massive Flight of the Concords mm. fans, and they mock me incessantly about things that are joked about in the show, like they said, is there such a thing as a toothbrush fence? I'm like, yes, there is such a thing as a toothbrush fence. New Zealand's weird like that. And then they, they say, well, have you actually ever met Brett and Jermaine? And I've never met them, but I did see Jermaine pushing a, a pram down Cuba Street in Wellington yeah. once. There you and go. it's just... That's what happens. I interviewed him for The Guardian Australia maybe two years ago, and I it was kind of like, oh, hi, Jermaine. And I wasn't sure whether he remembered talking to me or not, but I had a very friendly chat. Then I interviewed Taika, and then I interviewed Sam Neill. It's like been a good kind of round of New Zealand people. Lord will be next, I'm, I'm, I hope. I want to ask about Lord. Oh, she, do you? I do, I do, mm. uh, because... Her album was my favourite from last year mm. by a, a very long stretch. And su- I'm not going to lie, I'm surprised by that because I didn't go into it as a massive Lord fan. Right. And then I listened to it and thought, this she's this person is only 20. Mm. We're going to be listening to music she's producing in 10 years' time and then we'll listen back on Melodrama and think, oh, young Lord, you didn't know <laughs> X, Y, Z. Uh, yeah, young Lord. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree, and that I think she is obvious. I mean, she said said as much as interviews that she's playing the long game, um, and it will be really interesting to see what she's doing in you know, as you say, ten, twenty years. Um, I really like the idea that she's set out for herself of being like next generation's Paul Simon. Very interested in seeing that. Yeah, I was very impressed by the album. Um, like such a step up in every way. Not that she was bad to start with is the right. thing. Yeah, like it, it, she could have repeated what she did with Pure Heroin and it wouldn't have been a failure. The advances she made were really interesting and obviously pushing herself creatively in a way that wasn't necessarily demanded of her by the public, which is something. She said, I think it was in an interview with The Guardian, that she listed off a series of noted music luminaries like uh, mm. Tori Amos. That's and, right. Yeah, and, mm. you know, she was... Pounding the table, yeah, right? Yeah, I remember. Simon. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I thought, you can certainly hear the development. You know? Well, I think that that will be true of Taylor Swift as well. Like, I think eventually Taylor Swift will come back to something resembling country um, because she can't stay in this era forever, which is why I think she's really gunning for the massive pop, you know, dominance now because... I think she does see herself as a musician for the long, the long game. This is a particular moment where she can have that that kind of power and um, dominance, but she won't be able to in ten years. I think, I think country or something resembling it will be her longer home, longer term home. Interesting. Mm, I've got a lot of theories about these things, and I should write them down just so that then I can kind of open it in a time capsule and be like, yes, all my theories were right. (laughs) (laughs) Or wrong, and then I will bury them again. (laughs) Have you made any predictions about musicians in the last two, three years which have come to be? I think I predicted, I mean, it's very easy to say now, but I definitely predicted um, Evil Swift coming. Like, I think shortly after... I started listening to her in maybe 2011. Everyone was like, oh, she's so emotional. She gets so hung up on her boyfriends and stuff. And But 
I had seen the flinty core of steel within, you know? But it's a hard thing <laughs> to prove. I keep going back through my old tweets trying to find like a kind of dated <laughs> one to show that I was ahead of the curve on that. But yeah, I had, I had seen her snake-like tendencies. So in the, in, in the evolution of a musician, what comes after evil Taylor Swift? Um, well, right now she's really gunning for dominance. And you can hear that in the new album, Reputation, where it just sounds like an amalgamation of basically every contemporary music trend. And it's done well. I don't say that as a negative thing. I'm speaking as someone who likes basically every contemporary music trend. But she's going to have to reel it back into something more coherent. I think. Um, but that won't happen until probably, I mean, there's the tour coming now, so she's living reputation for the next like year to 18 months. I'd say 20, 2020, maybe mid-2019. Okay. Yeah, and I'd say then she, we might see an indication of where she's heading for, you know, it's too early to say. <laughs> <laughs> so Lord would be your ideal interview. Um, and Jacinda Ardern post-baby. would really like to get that Jacinda Ardern post-baby interview. As I assume she's listening or someone who knows her is listening. I think that's... Yeah. certainly happened. I can't, <laughs> see, I can't see why not. I, I talk, I've talked to so many people from back home about uh, you know, Jacinda Mania and everything mm. that's gone about that. And someone who's not at all interested in politics kind of summed it up really nicely for me. He said, it's the first time I've known a prime minister who I feel like I know, mm. and yet I've never met her, I have no involvement. And there's something about that. But then I also have friends who sort of lean to the right and well, say, yeah, I was going this, to is the, say. this is the criticism, you know, That's what this is people what we said about, about John, John Yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly. I was talking to a New Zealand friend who's visiting about this the other day, where it's, he was so popular because of his stated charisma. And personally, I have to admit, I didn't see it. I mean, it's uh, his popularity. I remember like John Johansson at Victoria University telling me, it's like, he's someone that the population can see themselves wanting to have a beer with. I was like, not me. But then you try to just send my way. I'm like, yeah, crack it open. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is like, I'm a bit, I'm really, like, it's really personally gratifying to have so many people around the world, like, n interested in New Zealand. And I think it's something that people can kind of rally behind as well, particularly with, like, a sort of, quote-unquote, royal baby on the way. But it is the same nationalistic kind of sentiment, right? Yeah. Like, and it is the same, on some levels, it is the same superficial approach to politics as left-wing people in New Zealand criticised among John Key voters, it's just that she's on our team. So I have conflicted feelings about it, as much as it is nice to feel proud of being a New Zealander. Which well, I didn't, not before, it's just, you know, with the whole world knowing who kind of Jacinda Ardern is, it's very fun to be able to say, oh, I voted for her and so did all my friends. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Someone came up to me shortly after Winston had announced that he was going to go with Labour, mm. and she's English and she just said are you happy about Jacinda yeah just the name itself that's all she knew I think um, I remember a news conference with Kath Viner our editor sort of like I can't get enough of Jacinda like you know she was a pass notes that little Q&A in G2 where the like the Guardian essentially endorsed her like if only we could have one you know it's it is fun to get kind of caught up in that sort of thing and I think it is ultimately obviously positive for the country but I 
like for my example for example like a differing viewpoint i have a very conservative father who in sort of bemoaning the state of the world would be like brexit trump and now jacinda and what he actually kind of means is that he's worried brexit won't go ahead <laughs> and um i mean i don't think he's pro trump i think that's where he draws the line but yeah he's like brexit they can't even get brexit through um, and then he's like, and now there's like a 22-year-old running the country or something. So I would really like her to kind of enact some, like, have some numbers on the board and some definite rings yeah. that I can then put to my dad and be like, well, dad, look, you know, it's not just her baby that we're enthusiastic about. <laughs> I've met John Key three times. Oh, yeah. Good for I, you. I, I have. It was... Did he come to your 21st? He, he did not come to my 21st. It <laughs> Is was, he your friend's it, landlord? Yeah. <laughs> it was... It was Twice, uh, twice was through the farming show. Oh. So, the the farming show for those who uh, don't listen to it, and let's face it, that's probably every single person listening now, is <laughs> including a, me. Yeah, it's <laughs> a, a daily digest of rural New Zealand, hosted by the interesting Jamie Mackay. Is it still Jamie Mackay? It is still Jamie. Oh my Mackay. God! Yeah, I think it's been rebranded the Country now. Oh, interesting. Because more broad. More, more broad. Yeah. And. Every single time I've met John Key, he's said, oh, Michael Oliver. I went to school with a Michael Oliver. Really? And I went, mm. that's, that's, that's a wonderful anecdote, John. <laughs> and what was really interesting was that when the microphones were off, he, uh, he had this, he was virtually the same person. He was yeah. still the same kind of, you know, jocular, oh, I'm just one of the boys kind yeah. of thing. But I, you know, I watched how he interacted with particularly Jamie and particularly with all the other farmers because this was at the... How's it called? Field days. Oh yeah! And wow. I, I, I understood why that particular demographic loved him. Mm. Well, um, he's he, he's sort of undemanding, right? Like that kind of comment. Oh, I knew a Michael Oliver. It's like it doesn't really leave you anywhere in the conversation. Right. Like, what do you say to that? But it is easy, and it's sort of unthreatening, non-threatening rather. And it, it's sort of like it's the Teflon thing, isn't it? Really? Exactly yeah. yeah. It's interesting because the farming show was like, wasn't it seen as one of the places where he was like most comfortable media appearances wise? Isn't that where the gay red top was? So I was responsible <laughs> for bringing gay red top to the world's attention. Well done. So it was, I was sent down to Dunedin to film John Key on the farming show, yeah. which consisted of me standing in the corner of the, uh, the studio in Dunedin holding an iPad and taping him. And <laughs> like a mom on tour. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Uh, and I, I actually asked, I said, do we want to have some you know, proper equipment in the room? Like, no, nah. no, nah, nah, it's fine. We'll yeah. just put it up on Twitter. It'll be good. <laughs> and the thing was, I you know, recorded the show. I put the show on the Farming Show website. And for, I want to say, a good 72 hours, that interview was online. No one quoted it. No one tweeted it. Mm. And... It was only when I got back to the News Talk ZB office and I said, huh, come watch this video. John Key is acting like a lunatic. We should probably put this up because it was back in the day when mm. getting page views was the most important thing in the world. And it just sort of dawned on me, wait a minute, he just referred to his jacket as being gay. Is this a thing? And I mean, not outside of past intermediate, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it, it's, um, it is indicative of some how some kind of controversies are made not born do yeah. not even, and outrage in particular i think we see now where there are some things that i see on a day-to-day -day basis where it's like you could with the right headline and the right people and the right treatment you could make this a talking point for the next you know 
two two days and you kind of choose not to. Obviously, you know, in those situations where you you have the choice, like, do I let this slide and it may not ever kind of happen or do I make a big deal of it? Not to say that you were wrong to make a big deal of this particular case because obviously that's not in, not homophobic language is not statesmanlike, is it? Even no. in the farming show. No, no. It, it always just struck me as interesting that there had been somewhere close to like 2,000 views of this particular video over the weekend and yet not a single comment came out mm. about it. Yeah. So thank you, Rural New Zealand, for <laughs> being bastions of progressive thinking. The country. <laughs> the country with Jane Mackay. So from The Guardian Australia, yeah. you've made the move over here. How did that come about? Well, I worked at The Guardian in Sydney for two and a half years and I knew that like when I'd been at university I'd never really planned to move to Australia but you know I really loved working for the Guardian there and I loved all the people I worked with there but my goal had been to get to the UK partly just because I do identify on some level as British and also the friends I'd made while working for the Guardian in Sydney for the first year had all moved back um, and I made other friends, but there were now people in London sort of saying, you know, when are you going to get here? That sort of thing. It then became a matter of waiting for a job to come up that I, you know, liked the look of and felt I could do. And one came up um, on the city's desk, which is a desk within The Guardian funded by the Rockefeller Foundation that I had always admired their features because they have, like, you know, they can really put the time and effort and money into doing them really well. When that came up, I was yeah very keen to work on their desk and got the job and moved in July 2017. What was your first impression about being in the Guardian office in London? The news environment over here is vastly different from certainly any other place on in the world. Yeah, that is definitely the case. But I mean, the things that struck me were just like boring kind of workday things where Guardian Australia is like a nice sort of size, about 50, maybe a bit more editorial staff. And you became really close with them. All those people I worked with were by far my best friends in Sydney. And, you know, you knew everything. You knew quite a bit about everyone you worked with. And then you moved to the Guardian HQ here and it's an enormous beast and you get a real sense of the history there's all these sort of printed broadsheets from like hundreds of years ago the conference in the morning and the daily news conference is like experts in their field some of the smartest people you ever hear talking on like the topics of the day and it was quite daunting at first coming from a very kind of compact office where you felt very supported and kind of with all of your friends around you to, uh, you know, you got the sense of, of what this organisation means throughout the history of a country um, for the first time. There was less of the startup mentality that we um, had in Australia where everyone kind of chipped in and did a bit of everything. And it's, they're both great, but that was the adjustment I felt arriving thing in London six months ago. When I first arrived, I did a little bit of sports video freelancing for The Guardian. And I remember my first day sitting in the multimedia hub which was on level three or four mm-hmm. that means yep. straight away the fact that it's there are four stories yeah. just filled with um, reporters and I remember uh, the the office chat just being vastly different it was about best way to get into Israel without getting your passport stamped <laughs> so that when you go into Afghanistan and Iran you don't have to show an Israeli stamp and apparently they you can say to them look don't stamp my passport can you stamp something else and they'll stamp it 
I think I've heard this conversation in Australia. So there you go. It's obviously like a consistent Guardian conversation globally. So you're working on the uh, for Guardian Cities. And yeah. You recently went to Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. What Tell um, us about that. On my first day when I started at Guardian Cities, they said, um, are you free to go to Brazil in November? I'm like, yeah, definitely. No, no prior commitments. Every year, the city's desk does a week of live reporting from a particular city around the world. And in the past, the team has gone to uh, Mexico City and Mumbai. Um, I think they did one in Jakarta. And this year, it was Sao Paulo and Brazil. And essentially, those cities are chosen because they are either growing rapidly or changing in some way, or I think they're all mega cities. Yeah. So we go there, sort of immerse ourselves as much as you can for a week and try and share what's going on there with a global audience with hiring a lot of local journalists as well it was really interesting it was not a place i'd ever been to before and i didn't know much about the journalists we met there were very very generous with their time and knowledge and you got a sense of i suppose how easy it is to sink into a bubble of your own kind of world if you don't make an effort to go outside of it and how massively different other people's experiences of the world can be to yours, and at the same time, some similarities as well. What were some of the similarities? I think there was a concern among the journalists there about press freedom, how to interest people in serious issues. For them, that was including like serious political corruption when there was a general sort of sense of apathy, mm-hmm. which I think we experience in reporting in the UK in other ways, so perhaps more about climate change, things like that. Yeah. It doesn't seem like political apathy is like a massive one at the moment. No. <laughs> uh, no across no. the board. <laughs> Those sorts of challenges, particularly journalists talking to other journalists, were consistent. I suppose things about inequality as well, like the spectrum of it may be different in Sao Paulo than it is to London, but things like access to housing whether you sort of believe a universal basic income is necessary, things like that. It was interesting to compare notes in that regard. Did you feel like you learned anything about yourself being there? (laughs) It was a really great time for me to go. It was the first, I suppose, sort of like most in-depth reporting trip I've done like that. But of course, this isn't all you have been writing about during your time. (laughs) There has been... Uh, I want to say a considerable amount of interest in a piece you wrote very recently about the state of your personal finances. <laughs> yeah. You, how did this story come about in the backlash, for want of a better term? Oh, no, that's, that's the term. <laughs> well, since I moved, I did the occasional feature for G2, the Daily Features Supplement. And in December, the editor, Kira, approached me and said, hey, we're interested in finding a young person to do a spending diary to see if it's true that you know the the trite suggestions that by cutting out avocado toast you could afford a house and absolutely at that point I was unequivocal I was like yep definitely can't afford a house happy to show you how that it's not my fault because like I'm yeah I'm happy to keep a spending diary because I'm confident that it has no bearing on whether or not I can afford a house just by virtue of the price to income ratios that sort of thing so I set out to record all of my expenditure for four weeks over the Christmas period 
um, with the help of Martin Lewis, who's a very forgiving <laughs> money expert, um, who I think has the show on ITV. So I had an interview with him where I told him how much I earned and my general circumstances. And straight off the bat, he was like, no, there's no way you can afford a house in London. But let's carry on with this exercise. Then um, I had another couple of interviews with him and eventually sent him my notes of my, for want of a better word, frittering, <laughs> my mindless expenditure. And he gave me a telling off um, in a very fair way and essentially said that I was living within my means, um, but it was not the spending diary of someone who was looking to the future. Whether or not that meant a house um, or what he termed, I think it was the three Ds, death, divorce or dementia. Um, he was like, well, you need, you know, you're 26 now, it's fine. You're going to need, you're not going to be 26 forever. He's like, time creeps up on you you're going to wish you had some money at some point and you may as well start now. And I mean, obviously, I don't argue with that. It's, it's hard to argue with that, right? It's the voice of reason. So I read up about this experience of him. And it, yeah, I mean, eventually he said, you know, you could afford a house. It would take you time. You could do it outside of a relationship and you could buy in London if that was a priority for you but what I'm seeing in your spending diary is that it's not and I agree I, like the concept of buying a house had not really been something real to me because I'd been put off by the I suppose the fact that it is unreal by the numbers right mm. so it was interesting the experience I found really valuable just by virtue of addressing or confronting like head on where my money was going and where I was getting value out of that or not. Um, so ever since I filed the piece, I have been much better. But what I wanted to convey in it was that what Martin said to me and what I absolutely acknowledge is that I'm not representative of people my age, both in what I earn and I suppose my circumstances where I don't have an, an enormous amount of student debt, I have don't have a credit card, like... I'm very lucky to be able to spend the way I have been spending. What I didn't want to be was held up as, turns out all millennials can afford a house just by, um, just by cutting back on avocado toast, even if that was perhaps allegedly the situation for me. And I think that is perhaps how it may have come across <laughs> to some people. And I can't, I can't begrudge them that. Like, it, it would undoubtedly be galling to see... Um, me making a lot of jokes about how I waste my money when I do have money to waste, and a lot of people don't. You mentioned before we started recording that the comments for this particular piece were turned off because the feeling, I suppose. We didn't know that when we decided to keep to, um, comments turned off, but it was felt that the risk of personal attacks would be too high. Um, and The Guardian is good in that it does think about um, the impact on its writers in that way. Um, and I mean I am contactable on Twitter and many people did contact me on Twitter or by email or um, by two cases post <laughs> and I engaged with those who were respectful or, or polite and didn't with those who weren't which is my usual yeah, my usual approach to reader feedback like I'm obviously I really like welcome criticism and I want to engage with the issues, but I think if it is personal abuse, I don't feel like I'm obliged to. I think I remember your Twitter banner for a while was 
saying that's not news only makes me stronger or something. Yeah, that you, that was my personal brand up until recently. I felt that it didn't really apply post Brexit and Trump. Interestingly, I felt yeah, I had to do a lot of soul searching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also people don't really comment that's not news anymore. It was a very kind of like early 2010s thing. Yeah, you mm. know, it, it seems the that fake news is the exactly the yeah because you can now comment that's not news and it is genuinely not news. It's like by some Macedonian teen for clicks. So uh, yeah, now I have laugh or log off, <laughs> which Rihanna coined. But yeah, that's my um, 2018 brand. I find Twitter really interesting. Oh. I, 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 <laughs> so you didn't you, you taught for a while? Taught social media. Yeah, learning. I did to um, only for one term to a stu- group of student journalists in Fitoreo in Wellington. It was very fun. I think they're all employed now, gamefully. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the technology I taught them, which would have been in two thousand and maybe fourteen. It's now not really used, which goes to show how quickly it's all using. I hope they're doing okay out there. Thing I have a, a sort of a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Everyone does. Yeah, it, it sort of it reminds me of what message boards were like in the early two thousands. Really, I thought that they were sort of a bit more um, collegial. It it was. It's it's a message board if the moderators had just given up and left, and everyone was allowed <laughs> to post whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, and it's hard to find. Yeah, the signal. I think you, stuff. yeah, you do now more so than perhaps you had to be. You have to be very disciplined about who you follow now. I think, but even then, this sounds like I'm proud of this. I'm not especially, but I just had a tweet added to a Twitter moment. <laughs> <laughs> Going from high to high over here, but like it, now, I, my mentions are just full. Like it's insane. The th- they're coming through thick and fast. Everyone has a different opinion on Jennifer Lawrence not wearing a coat or something. Like I just made some comment about it, and it, it, that noise thing—you feel it really, really acutely. I remember also I did the Guardian story for. Do you remember the, in the Trump inauguration where there were those photos of the crowd and whether it was a big crowd or not? Yeah. I did that story, and The Guardian has a fun quirk. It may actually have been removed. I haven't noticed it recently. Where you reply to The Guardian link, it CCs in the author. Um, and I also did in the same week a story about Assange as well. So it was a, a big week on Twitter and not in a good way, where with both those stories, I was getting so much response directly from Trump supporters and WikiLeaks supporters that it felt, and they were so sure of what they were saying and then showing pictures of, in the Trump case, the crowd and how it looked like at different angles that you just felt like, have I got this wrong? I'm sure I didn't get this wrong. Like I'm, you know, but they all are showing these many photos. And it was like kind of like, looking through the world through like re- refracted glass um, and that Twitter can be a bit like that where in this silly thing about Jennifer Lawrence should she have worn a coat or not the responses are almost equally split around people saying very stridently this is a beater and others being like yeah go Jennifer Lawrence like it's, it's mad you could understand the world a completely different way if you were to follow different people or yeah you can find anything to back up the way um, you see yeah, I think my relationship towards it is erring increasingly towards hate rather than love, but I don't feel like I can get out. <laughs> now that you've you've been away for, from New Zealand, how many years? What, three years? Yeah. No, yeah. It was my third anniversary out last month. Three years out. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you still contribute to uh, the spin-off. Yeah, on the yeah. down low. On though. the down low. Okay, <laughs> I, I, um, I write the occasional article for my friends at the spin-off, yes. 
just because they're very good about letting me write about whatever I want. And often New Zealand things that I would, there's maybe not a global audience for. Mm. So when you look back and think about New Zealand, it could be anything at all. Has being overseas changed your perception? If so, how? Moving to Australia immediately, I became much more proud of New Zealand than I was, partly because we have a very good track record on things that Australia in particular is quite bad at. So it was a, a fun way to be like, oh, well, we have a treaty there, you know. <laughs> we, oh, we passed mar- same-sex marriage ages ago. Yeah, I remember like sort of arriving in Sydney and being like, oh, what order do you do your um, Indigenous first with your national anthem? And, you know, that sort of thing. So I immediately kind of became through a study of contrasts like very like proud of New Zealand even under the John Key government because also Australia teaches you that right wing can go far more right wing than national party as well but moving to London I think the big thing has been how distant and far away it feels like I in Australia it was quite easy to feel engaged in my family's and my friends lives back there because it was only a couple of hours like I'd call my sister and talk to her while I was walking to work a couple of times a week and it was very easy to keep in touch with people just that way but also to feel like you were experiencing the day the same way. You know, you were on the same... They were a couple of hours ahead of you but it was sort of all (laughs) unfolding the way um, it would in both countries. But here it is so different. I remember when I left Australia sort of saying to kind of oh, I'll be back in March to visit. And then I did the flight from Auckland to London. And I was like, wow, I am not doing that for at least another year. Like, it is horrendous. And you get off and you're just kind of like, oh, it's a completely different part of the world. You could not be further away. And it's been a real challenge finding mutually beneficial times to talk to my family I'm always missing my mum's call when I'm at the pub and she's like it's your mother and I say wouldn't you rather I'm at the pub with friends (laughs) than at home but I've gotten used to waking up to messages from Australia and New Zealand like news because their day has happened so they're passing on things I'm waking up to it when you do eventually get someone on the phone for a chat it's what have you done today? Well, I'm about to do this. It's very strange and unsustainable, ultimately, I think. I admire people who can balance that pull better than I am, I think. But at the same time, I am loving London and feel much more at home here than I ever did in Australia, partly because I think I do identify as British, as I said, and things that I grew up with up to the age of 10 do still feel familiar and a surprising number of them. And my parents are very British, so the move here has in some ways been less challenging than the move to Sydney was, where I did feel truly foreign. (laughs) Would you go back to New Zealand, do you think? Classic question, yeah. I had it at my flat (laughs) a couple of weeks ago, and there's some New Zealanders there, and everyone's just like, do you think you'll go back? Do you think you'll go back? It was a funny throwback to my time in Wellington, where it's like, do you think you'll go? Do you think you'll go? Partly it's too early to say, and I can imagine my mind changing on this, for family as family was to become more important to me <laughs> not that they're not important to me now but at the moment career takes precedence and I can't see myself being able to do the kind of work I'd like to do in New Zealand to be honest the lifestyle is amazing the people are amazing it's staggeringly beautiful it's a very interesting place to be but it is very small. And I also am really enjoying being so close to Europe, even if we may not be able to live there and if we might have to go through passport queues. 
the proximity has a lot to be said for. And I could also foresee a sort of splitting the difference by returning to Australia just by it being a bit bigger, having a bit more of an industry, and at the same time being closer. Career-wise, mm. is there an end game? And if so, what does that look like? I think that the industry is changing so much, it would be probably foolhardy, if not pointless, to say I want to do X or Y you know, in 20 years' time. Like, I think that that isn't really how we work anymore, and particularly in journalism, where it seems to be very changeable. Even in the five years I've been working, financial models have changed completely. I really enjoy a sense that I'm getting to be a better writer and better editor, and I think, for me, it's that sort of personal progress that's the big motivating force. I like being able to read something I wrote a year ago and be disgusted by it because <laughs> it means I wouldn't approach it that way now. <laughs> Undoubtedly, the, spent, the personal finance piece will be the number one thing. <laughs> I look back to it and be like, my God, <laughs> what was I thinking and doing and spending? For me, it is just about new things and doing old things better. My thanks to Al Hunt and to you, the listener, for downloading this particular podcasty goodness. If you want to hear more about To Londoner and listen to the... How many other episodes have I recorded? I have subjected at least four, perhaps five other humans to my interviewing style. So listen to the other four episodes. You can find us on SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com slash dash Londoner dash podcast I really need to fix that URL that is a ball to say out loud and we're also on Twitter at to Londoner one word because I was smart with that one uh, tune in next time for more fun and frivolity and other kind of stuff here on to Londoner bye